Yesterday, we were looking at the life of Abraham, and um, we, we saw, uh, well, we saw a number of things about Abraham. Uh, we saw, for example, that, that he was a stranger and a pilgrim, right? Um, that he was the father of many nations, but not only the father of many nations, he was the father of all who would believe. And... Um, I believe that means he's the spiritual father of, hopefully, of each one of us, and the spiritual father of those who are living in the last days. We, were talked, we looked at, at what spiritual ancestry is all about, and um, we saw how the works of our spiritual father we will do. Um, you'll remember that um, when we looked a few nights ago um, at the, uh, the passage in... in uh, is it Romans chapter 13, verse 5, where it says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. You're either Jesus Christ or you're a, uh, a reprobate, the King James says, a depraved, corrupt person. And really, like Jesus was telling the Jews, we're either the descendants of Father Abraham and a part of the spiritual family of uh, Jesus, or we're the descendants, the spiritual descendants of uh, the first Adam, and really, um, ultimately, the works of our Father we will do because He followed Satan, Lucifer, didn't, didn't He? And so um, Jesus confronts the Jews, even though they were spiritual people, even though they were the Jews that were following Him with the reality that they weren't doing the works of Father Abraham. They were doing the works of their father. Um, and it's one way or the other, isn't it? We sometimes try to think that there's some middle ground or some you know, neutral place. Where, where we can be without being hot or cold. Um, but the reality is we're, it's either one way or the other. And um, we are influenced by our spiritual ancestry. Um, so we looked at the father of the end time faith. We saw how Abraham was a stranger and a pilgrim. We saw how he had these, uh, we won't go through these verses again, but we'll, we saw how, how he, was the, um, he was willing to go into a, a strange country, um, not yet having experienced the promises. They saw them afar off. He was persuaded of them, embraced them, and finally was willing to be called and considered and considered himself a stranger and a pilgrim. And this is what I want for my experience. We're going to look at another characteristic of Abraham today, and that's the fact that Abraham built altars, building altars. I wonder... Um, if we couldn't just bow our heads for an additional word of prayer as we open God's Word. Father, we just thank you that we have this opportunity to study. Um, Lord, I just pray for myself that, um, that uh, the message might be the message that each person here wants to hear, needs to hear, and that, we would, that, that, that I might not be seen, but that your truth and that Jesus might be seen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So open your Bibles with me. We're going to start with Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to look at one of the characteristics of, of uh, Abraham that I think is very, very powerful. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at um, verse 7. We've already seen verse 1, how God said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto your seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Now, it's very interesting that Abraham, you'll find this as a trend, as a, as a consistent pattern in Abraham's life. 
Wherever he goes to a new place, there he builds an altar. Verse 8 says, He removed from there and unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, having pitched his tent, uh, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Wherever Abraham went, he built altars. We skip down to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 13, and we look at verse uh, 4. Um, he's coming uh, back from Egypt. He's very rich in cattle and silver and gold, and he comes to, verse 3, it says, from the south even to Bethel, where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, under the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now, I don't think that Abraham just had a fascination with altar architecture. I don't think that Abraham was just into different altar designs and uh, building fascinating altars. I believe that Abraham was into worshiping God. And Abraham was interested in wherever he was having a memorial of the worship of the true God and having a place where people gathered to worship the true God. Those altars were not just a place where Abraham went, you know, for his private devotional time, morning and evening. Although I think it's it's perfectly appropriate for us to have a place, a habit, habitual place where we meet with God. For me as a young boy, I found it was um, the closet. Um, I built my little desk with some bricks and a board, and, and I had my devotions in my closet. That was my special place. Some people like to go outside. Jesus it would go to a certain spot in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that was his place. It was nothing holy about that place, you understand. But his mind was accustomed to being free from distractions in that place. His mind was accustomed to their focusing on his relationship with the Father. And um, Abraham would have a place where he went to spend time with God. And, and maybe this was part of his personal time, I don't know. But it wasn't just personal time. It was also time that he spent and a place where he spent with his family and with his household. And um, it's very interesting that that um, when, we, when we look later on in the life of Abraham, we see God speaking to him early one morning and telling him to go and, and to sacrifice his son. And um, in Ellen White's writings in Patriarchs and Prophets, she comments on this and she says that he was very confused about this. You know, this was Isaac, his only son whom he loved, as God took pains to remind him. And um, he went out into, into a place, she says he went to a place where he was accustomed to hearing God's voice speaking to him. So evidently there was some place, maybe it was one of these altars, that he had been accustomed to meeting with God, not just in his family circle, but also in his personal walk. And he, he looked for more information in that instance and, and, um, and heard nothing else. The voice was just ringing in his ear, go and offer him as a sacrifice. So the Bible here records that Abraham, wherever he went, went he was building altars. There were two purposes for these altars, or at least two. We'll look at two of them today. And um, I believe the first one was that of teaching. Um, Abraham realized that he was sent into this land, this promised land that now in, in uh, verse 7 had been promised to him. Um, he was sent not just for his own good to get out of Ur of the Chaldees, but he was sent as a missionary. He was sent to be a light in a dark place. In fact, 400 years later, when his descendants would actually inherit 
the promised land. Many people question this genocide, as some people have called it, why these tribes were extinguished and, and, and decimated and whole people groups would be killed by the Hebrews. Why would this be practiced? Well, it's, it's quite um, clear in my understanding, at least, that Abraham was sent as a missionary to these people groups to shine the light of heaven upon them so that they would have a knowledge of the true God and they would be able to have a, a, a way that, I mean, 400 years later, they didn't have to be annihilated. They could have been a part of the worship of the true God. But remember that the, the system of the patriarchs and prophets was established to try to preserve truth on earth. And remember that earth became so wicked that God destroyed the whole earth by flood. Now, you might consider that something of a genocide, right? I'm not trying to get into the ethical dilemmas of, of why God destroyed the earth with a flood, but I think he did, all right? And I think it was because he loved humanity, not because he was angry with any people group, but man became so wicked. And um, when the Israelites would, re would return to the promised land, um, these people groups, instead of appreciating the message of heaven, Melchizedek, the high priest of the Most High God, had been there among these people groups. Abraham had been there among these people groups. They had the opportunity to accept light from heaven. And by the way, they weren't far removed from Noah. You know, you, you might think, well, these are just innocent people. These people were in rebellion against God. I mean, let's, let's be honest. They knew the story of the flood. They knew the story of the Tower of Babel. And they were in absolute rebellion against God. And they were determined to go their own way. And instead of being hearts of wax and getting softer, they became balls of clay and became harder until, until they continued doing things like offering their own children as sacrifices to their self-created gods and um, refusing to worship the true God. So Abraham is sent as a missionary here. And these altars were a method of teaching. They're a way of instructing. In fact, we read in our Bibles um, in chapter 18 and verse 19 why it was that God chose Abraham to be that first patriarch anyway. Why was it that he was called to be the first among the patriarchs and prophets? Verse 19 of Genesis chapter 18 says, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. This is the confidence that God had in Abraham. And one of the reasons why God chose him to be his special representative, to keep the light of truth alive on planet Earth, to be the progenitor of the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. I, I tend to believe that human nature, being then what it still is today, I tend to believe that in Abraham's time, in order to command your children after you, and to walk in the ways of the Lord, to raise them to honor and fear God, it would take intentionality. Do you understand what I'm saying? It would require Abraham to be very intentional about what he was doing. It doesn't happen by accident, friends. It doesn't happen because we had good parents. It doesn't happen because we live in the right town, or it certainly doesn't happen because we send them to the right school. It happens when we're intentional about it. It takes work. It takes effort. I enjoyed Jane's 
Jane's uh, worship this morning, devotional this morning, and the, the things that she has gleaned from the book Adventist Home and Child Guidance and, and um, the effort that it takes. Um, I know it's different for everyone. We all have our own experience, and it's going to be a different experience for each one of us. But it takes effort. I think it takes intentionality. I don't think it just happens by accident. In my situation, I was, I was raised in a family where, where, um, where a lot of these things were practiced. And as I look back, I, I, I'm thankful, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to live in a home where I was taught to love and to fear God. I realized that my parents had to be intentional about it. I don't, I, at the time, I didn't appreciate, I don't think I do, kids do appreciate the type of effort and, and, and sometimes sacrifice that's required for parents to raise their children, to be the example, to be a step ahead of them, and to be proactive and all of these things. Uh, there's no way as kids that we could have comprehended what our parents were doing. And in some, of us, in some of our cases, we may not have grown up in homes where that was done. And so, so it's not easy for us to even imagine what we're supposed to do as parents. And it's very difficult. And, and I have a lot of respect for my parents, um, not just because of the way they, they raised me. They, they, um, they would be the first to say they weren't perfect parents. Um, but they, they did a lot of things right. Um, and, and, um, and still, I was a bit of tr trouble at times. <laughs> um, but what amazes me about my parents is they didn't have those role models. Uh, my, my dad was um, in the middle of a family of five siblings. He had two brothers and two sisters. And um, his um, father, who was never really an Adventist, he may have been baptized you know, at, his, at my grandmother's um, insistence at some point, but she had met him at Army Base up in Alaska and, and had um, gotten married. And, and um, after the fifth child was born and just still a babe in arms, the, my grandfather left. He, had nothing, he wanted nothing to do with the family. And, and, and they were a family of extremely ADD and hyper kids. And um, five of them, I can sort of imagine um, what it must have been like, three boys and two girls. And, and, um, and um, he, he had nothing to do with them the rest of their, their childhood, that bringing. My grandmother was um, a nurse. And um, of course, you know, in those days, nursing was a profession, but it wasn't, it wasn't a it wasn't, it wasn't really a profession like it is today, you know. They didn't make much money, and she worked very hard and raised five kids. Uh, so my dad grew up without a father. Um, my grandmother was a spiritual woman, um, but she was one who um, probably was the most proficient. Um, her most proficient skill was, was making people feel guilty um, <laughs> for, for not... Um, that, was her, that was her style of spiritual leadership. Um, and I love her. I loved her. She's passed away now. Um, I certainly pray that she's, um, I, I meet her in heaven. Um, she, I, I think she was sincere. But to her death, she was, she was one who um, excelled in inflicting guilt upon people. Um, and, uh, and this is the home my dad grew up in. Um, from eighth grade, he was pretty much on his own. And um, he worked his way through high school, Adventist High School. He worked his way through college and um, through dental school. And um, my mom was um, born into a Catholic family. Um, 
her mother got married when she was young, 17 or 18 years old, and um, maybe 19, I don't know, some, she was still in her teens, I know. And um, my grandmother um, got pregnant right away with my mom. Um, soon after um, uh, she became pregnant, my grandfather was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer and passed away at the age of 21 or so um, before my mother was born. So my mother never knew her father. And um, my grandmother remarried to this. They, my mom was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, French-Irish, French-Italian family. And um, my, gran my grandmother remarried a, a man from Mississippi who, um, I don't know the details of how they met and how she married him, but it wasn't a good decision. He, was, he wasn't a Catholic, but that wasn't the problem. He was, um, he was an alcoholic, and he was abusive. Evidently, my grandfather was a, was a good young man, um, but um, this, the second marriage was not a good marriage. He took her back to the family farm in, in Mississippi, he lived in a shack without running water and electricity behind his parents' house, and um, you know beat her regularly and kept her there. She couldn't go out anywhere, and and um, eventually she there in Mississippi, she somehow she got attracted to the um, from the Worldwide Church of God. Herbert Armstrong, Armstrong was a a man who had a lot of of Adventist-type ideas, the sanctuary message, the Sabbath, etc. Um, and she, met, she read this tract about the, uh, well, she read a tract and ended up writing for information. Here she was stuck in this place in Mississippi, and God started doing something in her heart. She started getting information from the Worldwide Church of God, and she, she began studying her Bible and coming to an understanding of Jesus. In fact, at one point she was baptized. She, she realized she needed to be baptized by immersion. So she found a Baptist church that would baptize her. And uh, even though she didn't attend church or couldn't go to church, she was baptized and she was, she was growing as a Christian. And um, she ended up escaping, getting back to New Orleans. He found her in New Orleans at one point, dragged her under a bridge and had a knife to her throat. And he, she thought she was gonna, he was going to kill her. Um, but he ended up, she ended up getting her kids back and getting back living with her parents in, in New Orleans again. And... Um, Going down the street on a bus in New Orleans, she saw a um, sign for a Seventh-day Adventist church, and that name, Seventh-day Adventist, struck her. She said, well, she didn't know there was anybody in the world that actually went to church on Sabbath. And um, she can become convinced of the Sabbath, but she didn't really know that people went to church on Sabbath, you understand? So, so she went home, and she got the phone book out, and she called the number to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She asked, do you go to church on Saturday, on the seventh day of the week? And they said, yes, we do. So she, the, 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 the pastor, I believe, had answered the phone, so the pastor said, would you like to uh, come to church this Sabbath? I'll pick you up. So, um, so here she is. She's in her mid-20s, I guess, by this time. She has a little two or three little kids. And um, she, um, she's there waiting, you know, um, all dressed up with her little mini skirt and bright red lipstick and, and, uh, and all, all, all the bling. And um, she's ready to go to a church. You know, this is the 19, what, 
50s. Um, and, and they just loved her. And um, she started going to church on a pretty regular basis. And um, the pastor said to her, well, your kids need to go to church school. Um, so she said, well, I guess they need to go to church school. They'll go to church school. So she put them in church school. And um, they would have to ride the bus to get to church school. My mom was the oldest, and um, she, they would ride, she would take her siblings to church school. Um, I think it was three buses they had to take across New Orleans, all the way across the town of New Orleans, city of New Orleans. It took 45 minutes each way um, to get to church school. And after a year or so in church school, my, um, my, uh, my grandmother was in the kitchen one day. They were fixing potluck or cleaning up after potluck. And some of the ladies were talking about the, the increase in tuition at the school that year. And my grandmother said, tuition? <laughs> the pastor had never told her that there was any tuition. The pastor had been paying her tuition. Uh, of course, they were poor. You know, They didn't have any money to begin with um, to pay the tuition. But to make a, it's, a, it's a quite a story because that pastor ended up by coincidence, I guess, Providence, whatever, um, was the uncle of my dad. Um, and when later they would meet and become married, my that pastor was the one that performed the wedding for my, my parents. Um, he had no clue, I'm sure, um, paying this poor Catholic family's tuition to church school that this would be the future uh, spouse of his nephew. At any rate, um, my, my mom was baptized. My grandmother wasn't baptized for a very long time, or at least several years. She had a problem smoking. She just couldn't quit smoking. So they didn't baptize her. They, she kept coming to church, and I think she actually started falling away from church for a while. She wasn't coming to church. Um, and um, another pastor came, and um, he went and visited her, and he personally took on the, the, the task of helping her stop smoking. And um, she was able to kick the habit and um, was baptized. And uh, again, it's a small world, but um, that pastor is now retired and, and my church member in, <laughs> in Dalton, Georgia. Um, but I owe him a debt of gratitude for, for my family's being an Adventist. Um, so you know, my parents went on to, my, my mom went on to um, high school, that's where she met my dad, in um, Ozark Academy in Arkansas, and um, they, were, they were good friends. In fact, they both lived off campus. Um, my mom had a teacher friend that had taught her in elementary school in New Orleans, and um, so she invited her to live with her in her home so she didn't have to pay the room, room of board, you know. Um, they didn't have money, as you recall. And uh, my dad lived there. In fact, my dad's family, my dad had an, an, a great uncle who had moved to Ozark or to Gentry, Arkansas, northwest part of the state there. And he had 12 kids. There was another family that had like 12 kids, and they started Ozark Academy. I mean, they had the whole school <laughs> between them. So um, it's one way to start a school, um, just have a dozen kids. But at any rate, um, they lived there. My, my dad had been born in Lincoln, Nebraska, but had moved down to, um, his family had moved down, I think when my dad, maybe when my grandfather left, I don't know, but they had moved down to, um, to, to Gentry. So he grew up there, went to elementary school, went to 
went to high school, and since the house where my mom was staying, the house where my dad was staying was the same direction from campus, they would walk back and forth to school together. So they were good friends. Um, and uh, my mom thought that my dad would do very well with her best friend, because um, so he, she set them up, um, and that didn't go so well. And I guess it was their senior year, maybe after they graduated, that they realized, hey, what about the two of us, you know? <laughs> and um, in college, they spent more time together and, and eventually were, were married. Um, but here they are, two, fa two, you know, two people, two individuals, both from broken homes, um, both with, without the role models of what a family should be, really, in any, in, to any, really in any way. Um, and so I have great respect for the fact that they were able to form a home. And I, I think the reason that they were was because they had a love for the spirit of prophecy, a respect for the spirit of prophecy. And they studied those same books that Jane was talking about today, Adventist Home, Child Guidance, Counsel to Parents, Teachers, and Students. Um, and they found principles there. And, you know, it's, it's hard when it's not your background and it's not the way you were raised. And um, you've got to change um, the ingrained expectations of this is just normal. Well, it's not normal. You know, um, <laughs> normal is just a setting on the dryer. We don't know what normal is, really. <laughs> normal is, normal really is what God considers normal. That's what normal is. But we just don't know normal because we're, we're, we're in this broken world with broken people. And we've, we've been raised, I know, I know we've been raised in good homes, Christian homes, Adventist homes, but we're, they're still broken homes. I mean, in one way or another, we're broken people. And so, so um, I, I'm very thankful that my parents were, were able to, with, the, with their desire to give their children something they didn't receive, they were able to learn for themselves and, um, and they moved, you know, much like Abraham, <laughs> they moved from, after they had um, finished their time in Loma Linda, they moved from, from California. Now, my dad had, I think it was 29 in his, medical, in his dental school class. As I recall, um, 27 of them stayed in Southern California. One of them went to Northern California. My dad went to Arkansas, and um, they prayed that God would lead them. It wasn't to the part, they, they, you know, my mom was from Louisiana, southern Louisiana. My dad was from northern Arkansas. They settled in, in west central Arkansas and, and um, near Hot Springs, and there was an area there, coincidentally named Clark County, that was uh, a dark county. There was no Adventist church there. There, was the, uh, t uh, there were two universities in the college town, a town of 10,000 or so, the biggest town. It's not a big city. And um, they, first, they first set about to start a church there in that town. And it was hard. You know, they moved. There, when they moved to town, there was only, they moved to a small town called Amity, where the dentist had sent, recently retired. It was a, a very small town, 800 people or so. And um, they, 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 my dad built an office and, and started to practice. But if you were to move, if you were to look for a house, there were no houses for rent, you know. Um, in the south, you'll find small towns in the south, there's not a lot of transient population. Um, people pretty much stay there, and they, you know, inherit their parents' place, and they, you know, the farm, homestead, whatever. It's not a lot of just 
Yeah. So there was two houses. Uh, there was one house available in town that was right across the street from the public school. Well, my parents wanted to homeschool us. Um, they didn't really want to send us to public school. Um, and so they thought it would be a little awkward if they moved in across the street from the public school. Um, particularly since at that point, or at some point right then, um, Arkansas actually outlawed homeschooling, which made it even more awkward, you can understand. Um, and uh, so here we were. Um, the only other option was that there was a retired dentist. The retired dentist lived 12 miles out of town, and um, he had a house, an old farmhouse, a across his farm that was available, and um, he was willing to rent it to my parents. Now this, this was a, this farmhouse was, I don't know when it was built, but it was before they had things like insulation and, and probably before they had wiring and stuff too. It was, a, it was, it was in bad shape, it was in really bad shape. There, were, there was one hanger in the house, but it was too shallow, it wasn't deep enough for a hanger to fit in. Um, um, there was like one cabinet over the sink, and that was it in the kitchen. Um, the back part of the house had been added on, the kitchen and bathrooms, and, um, and it had sunk over time, so it was sloped <laughs> like this. And, um, and my parents, um, well, uh, the, the problem was that the, the bathtub was, you know, the bathroom was in that part of the house too, but the drain was uphill. <laughs> so, so the tub wouldn't even drain. Um, and I remember when we first moved in that they just picked up the tub and put like a pipe or something under it so it would tip back the, the right way and drain. And it actually was, it had a rocking tub for a while. And um, while my dad was building his office, he was sort of fixing up this house as well. They charged us $75 a month for rent. That was probably overpaid. I mean, it was overcharged. But um, at any rate, here we were out the... You could see the landlord's house across the field, about a quarter mile away across the pasture, the cows and all. And um, the next nearest neighbor was seven miles. And um, some of my parents' friends came from Loma Linda. And they said, um, you know, um, if you're happy here, you probably should think about going to the mission field or something because you probably do really well. And, and my parents said, uh, we are in the mission field. You know, I look back, it, it would have been a lot easier for them to stay in Loma Linda. Nothing against, you know, the people that stayed in Loma Linda, but I'm glad my parents didn't raise me in Loma Linda. I'm glad that they took those difficult choices and, and um, made those sacrifices. I mean, everything we had, we had a big, the conference moved us to the conference moving van. You know, back then they would move, they probably still do. If you're wanting to, a professional wants to move from Loma Linda, your conference, they'll move you out and help make you part of the mission of their conference. But um, we had all of our things in storage all the way in the very back of one room. And, um, and it was just, a, it was an awkward Difficult time for my parents, I know, but they believed that God had led them here. And they had a purpose to start a church and to start a work in, in, that, in that area. And, um, you know, I look back and I think, you know, now you look and you think, well, you know, um, now, I mean, they've, they've made a good life for themselves. We grew up well. We didn't stay there for very long, a year. Um, they ended up building... Um, 
they have a comfortable home on, on a lot of land and, and, um, and they ended up starting a school and I think there's probably five churches either planted or being planted now as a result of the ministry there in that part of Arkansas. Um, people don't remember those early years though, you know? Sometimes you see a vision, you hear, well, you hear a story of someone, you see, well, they've established themselves, they've, we want to do something like that. Don't forget that, I mean, I'm, trying, I'm not saying it's a matter of discouragement, I'm saying don't be discouraged if when you are in these steps, there are times of, this is crazy, you know? I don't know how this is ever going to work. Um, so, Abraham left the comfortable Ur of the Chaldees. He goes out and he says, I'm not just going to come to Canaan with the hope that 400 years from now or however long my descendants are going to inherit this land. I'm here with a mission, and I'm going to build altars. Um, I think the altar was sort of like him building a church. It's really the modern-day equivalent of it. He was building a church. Um, this passage... Um, from the Spirit of Prophecy gives us some insights into this. God called Abraham to be a teacher of His Word. Isn't that interesting? And um, it wasn't just to be a, a stranger and a pilgrim and a progenitor of, of, of nations. He was called to be a teacher of His Word. He chose him to be the father of a great nation because he saw that Abraham would instruct his children and his household in the principles of God's law. And that which gave, him po gave power to Abraham's teaching was the influence of his own life. His great household consisted of more than a thousand souls, many of them heads of families, and not a few, but newly converted from heathenism. Such a household required a firm hand at the helm. No weak, vacillating methods would suffice. Of Abraham, God said, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. Yet his authority was exercised with such wisdom and tenderness that hearts were one. The testimony of the divine watcher is, they shall keep the way of the Lord and to do justice and judgment, Genesis 18, 19. The, and Abraham's influence extended beyond his own household. Wherever he pitched his tent, he set up beside it the altar for sacrifice and worship. When the tent was removed, the altar remained, and many a roving Canaanite, whose knowledge of God had been gained from the life of Abraham his servant, tarried at that altar to offer sacrifice. To Jehovah. Education, page 187. You see, Abraham, Abraham was not just there for his own purposes. He was there to be a light and a missionary and a teacher. And another place she says that there were people who came, they wanted to attach themselves to Abraham. Many of these thousand souls. And by the way, some people say, well, where did Ellen White get that number? I mean, besides the fact that she's inspired, let me just mention again that, that um, when Abraham went to to, um, to fight the, the kings, remember, the four kings, yeah, that who had captured the five kings, there was actually, he armed himself with, I believe it's 318, born in his household, that's right. Um, so these would have been younger people, younger men, um, at least fighting age, you know. I don't know what that would be from teenager to, you know, whatever age. And... Um, if they had that many of that age of men um, fit to go and fight, born in his household, you figure the mothers, the, the, the fathers and wives, the children, 
um, it's very easily understood it was well over a thousand. A thousand people. Why did they come to Abraham? Another place Ellen White says that they came because they, they saw something that they wanted in his life. They wanted to attach themselves to him so that they could learn of his God. So Abraham's altar was not just his private place of personal devotions. Abraham's altar was the place where he instructed his family, instructed his household. Can you imagine family worships with 200 kids running around? I don't know how he did it. I don't know the details. But I do know one thing. It had to have been intentional. You can't just say, well, I'm going to live my life. The altar is evidence that Abraham was intentionally teaching. He was systematically instructing the people, his children, his household's children, in the ways of Jehovah. He wanted them to know about the true God. We could talk about this, um, this in several different ways, but um, the two ways we're looking at Abraham's altar is instruction, teaching, and that of worship. That of worship. And when it comes to worship, there's several different types of worship that we can look at. First of all, we think of personal worship. Abraham's altars symbolize the personal time that he spent with God. And this is something that we also are given an example. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And, you know, we don't, we don't usually forget to eat very long. I actually do have a problem with that um, because food, uh, food is not on my mind a whole lot. I can get busy. I'm very task-oriented, and, and um, I love food. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I don't, I don't have struggle with appetite. But um, there, are times when, there are times when I actually forget that I haven't eaten a meal, and um, it usually strikes me when I get very hypoglycemic. And... Um, and that's not a good thing because men get irritable when they're hypoglycemic, right? Um, but the fact is that uh, we very rarely forget for very long to eat. Yet Jesus is very clear here when he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We ought to be more worried about missing our time with Jesus than we are about missing a meal. Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, the testimony of Jesus, and this is just one of the passages. I believe Janet referred to um, some verses as well, but this is what it says in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. And by the way, um, the the context of this is Saturday night. Saturday night, um, the people after sundown, because the Jews didn't like Jesus healing during Sabbath, right? They had that hang up. And so um, after sundown, people start bringing sick people to Jesus. And they keep bringing them and bringing them and bringing them and bringing them. And it's late, late, late at night. In fact, it says they brought him all that were diseased. And all the city, verse 33 says, was gathered together at the door. The whole town was at the house where Jesus was here in, um, in this part of Galilee. And as they... Uh, as they, 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 they brought all the sick and those who were demon-possessed. I mean, Jesus had a very, very late night. You ever had late nights? Um, the Bible says, verse 35, in the morning rising up a great while before day. His disciples were probably out cold. I mean, they were worn out from the night before. 
but Jesus knew there was something that was more important to him than food or sleep. He needed to spend time with his father a great while before the day. Jesus, it says, goes out, he departs into a solitary place, and there prayed. Um, a few of the disciples later on would follow and, and say, hey, this is evidently, they followed him evidently. They probably knew where he was going. He probably had in Capernaum or the town there in Galilee where he was at. He probably had a favorite spot there too. And um, you'll notice that when the disciples follow him, they say the whole town's looking for you again. So obviously it was after everyone woke up, right? Because the disciples show up. And um, you know, there's something that I've learned. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to apply. I've learned it. I'm trying to apply it in my life. Did you ever wonder why the Bible says the evening and the morning were the first day? I mean, the Roman time, of course, began at midnight to midnight. But biblical time, God's time, starts from sundown and goes to sundown. That's the day, right? And um, I've come to realize there's a lot of wisdom in God's reckoning of time. And that is, we tend to wake up in the morning and say, okay, I want my day to go well. What do I need to do? Well, maybe I need to have my devotional time. I need to, right? We want our day to go well. And we think, I think of my day as starting when I wake up in the morning. Well, God's wise. He sort of thinks ahead. He's a planner, you know. He plans ahead. And He knows that if we wait until morning to plan our day, it's not going to go so well. Because So He started the day back there at sundown. And if we want our day to go well, what we need to do is go to bed early. <laughs> so we can wake up early and spend our time with Him, right? So he says, don't think of your day as starting at midnight or starting at when you wake up in the morning. Think of your day as starting the evening before. And sit down and say, okay, well, how do I want tomorrow to go? How can I plan tomorrow now? Well, one way I have found, and it's hard for me, but one way is by not staying up too late, which then sort of, predestines tomorrow's outcome, doesn't it? Um, the evening and the morning were the first day. And our days start really in the evening. So Jesus rises a great while before day. And this is an example, even, even though he hadn't purposefully, intentionally, he wasn't out, you know, just like, I don't know, watching a movie or something. That's why he was out so late. He was out doing ministry, and yet he still got up early. And, um, and I suppose that might be because it was his habit to do so. I want to look at a couple of other verses where this concept comes from of personal worship and morning and evening worship and so forth. Let's look back in Exodus, all the way back in Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28, and we're going to look at uh, verses 38 and 39. Exodus 28, verses 38 and 39. Um, is that right? No, that's not right. I'm not sure. Um, Exodus chapter 29, I'm sorry, verses 38 and 39. These are the, um, these are the offerings that were to be offered on the altar, the uh, burnt offering. 
And this is what it says in verse 38. Now this is that which shall, thou shalt offer upon the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day continually. The one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at the evening. Now the morning and evening sacrifice were, they were just these two lambs, but they were offered on behalf of all of the congregation of Israel. And they symbolized that morning and evening worship that the leaders of each family was to be a part of. And each family, each father really, was responsible for training his family with intentionality, teaching them about the true God. And, and we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And um, this, is, this, is, this is the exhortation of God to obedience and to to, um, to the lifestyle that would lead to prosperity and success in the new country that God was leading them to. It says in verse 6, Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and upon thy gates. In other words, what God is saying to the children of Israel is you are to have the truth of the God, Jehovah God, the provider God, the deliverer God, the redeemer God. You're to keep it in front of you and your children all day long. Everything you do is supposed to be, is supposed to be through the lens, viewed through the lens of the truth of the God of heaven. You know, Jane and I were talking this morning about this, and, and uh, we were talking about how we tend... Um, um, how we tend to sometimes compartmentalize our lives. I don't know how many of you, but, but um, some of us grew up in families where we had maybe we had our religious times. I mean, we had church, of course, Sabbath, um, where we were, we were focusing on God and there was religious or spiritual instruction. Maybe we had morning and evening worship. But outside of these religious activities, we had, there was nothing to do with God. It was just compartmentalized. It was just like, that's the God time. The rest of the time is just secular. You know, now you just need to make sure you get a good education. Now you just need to study. You know, now you need to get good grades. Now you need to whatever it is. But there was no, there was, God didn't come into the, and what, 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 what I think Deuteronomy is trying to say to us is, don't compartmentalize your life. Don't just leave God in the morning and evening worship and go on throughout the day as if he doesn't, he doesn't impact your life. Make God a part of your everyday life. I remember when I first graduated from college and I went as associate pastor um, in southeastern California and, um, and I was working with young people mostly and I remember just being like, how do I, how do I get the idea across that being an Adventist is not going to church on Saturday? Like they just, they, you could just tell in their homes, there was nothing really said by their parents spiritual. They didn't really, I mean, there was, they, they did what everything, everybody else did during the week, except on Saturday they went to church. That was the only difference. And I'm like, how do you, you can't tell them that. I'll never remember, I, I worked, these young people, it's like, what do, you, what do I say to them? I finally, the Lord told me, he said, look, he showed me. He said, look, you just have to live a life that's different. They have to see a life that's different. Like Abraham. Abraham 
lived a life. They saw, it wasn't just what he was teaching. They saw him struggling with his own self and overcoming. They saw that he wasn't perfect either. I mean, after all, as Janet pointed out, he was a wimp, right? He had his problems. Uh, We don't follow everything that he did. Um, and, 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 And friends, it's one of the evidences for the inspiration of the Bible, that the Bible's heroes have their warts revealed as well. If it was just a piece of cultural literature, like other pieces of cultural literature in the world, they would gloss over any defects in, in their heroes, and they would not be reporting the sins of the patriarchs and the prophets. But the Bible is an inspired book. And so, um, where was I? Compartmentalizing our lives. Um, I really believe, when I was in California, I decided that, you know, I'm, obviously I was teaching. I was, I was, I, I, we had a school there, and I was teaching Bible and uh, spending time with the kids. Um, there came a point where I said, you know what, in high school I had really been very competitive, and the Lord had convicted me that, that sports were, were having a deleterious influence on my spirituality, which was a very difficult struggle for me. I was like, this is not bad. <sighs> And um, God said, yeah. But I, um, I remember one night I came home from a basketball game, and I, I had at that time a habit of every night reading 1 Corinthians 13. It's one of the passages that Ellen White says we should read every day. We'd be blessed if we read every day. So I'm reading 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It's, a tra- it's describing the character of God, and it does not behave itself unseemly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, and all those things. And one by one, I'm going through the characteristics of God's character, and I'm remembering my behavior on the basketball court, and I'm thinking, this is training me to the opposite of what God's character is. And I said, okay, Lord, you know, I'll quit. And um, so I'm after college now, and I'm in California, and I'm teaching these kids, and I, I didn't want to, I, I, I personally didn't, you know, want to engage in sports, and I came to the point where I remember I had this conversation with God. I was praying with him one day. I was out watching them. We didn't have a football field, but they, they used the church parking lot. You know, the parking light stripes were 10 yards. <laughs> and um, and um, I'm wearing my wingtip dress shoes, you know, leather-soled dress shoes. And I finally, the Lord convicted me that it's not about me. I need to spend time with those kids. And um, it's a little bit of a struggle, because I thought you told me not to play these things, you know. But I said, okay, now it's, it's a different situation, isn't it? And um, so I went out and I started playing football with these guys. And, um, and that and the other time I spent with them, I tried to bring my religion into everything I did. I'll never forget, it was second semester, and, and um, we had a, a new student join the school who had been with them through elementary school, but had left during, uh, he'd gone to Loma Linda Academy for the first semester of his freshman year. And so he came back second semester, and he's now here with these high school students that we've been together for a semester and playing football for a quarter maybe and um, during recess. So we go out and we start playing, and there are two boys, Brad and, oh, anyway, one of the other boys. Um, they were, the, the, Brad said to the other boy, Anthony, Brad said to Anthony, he said, um, you know, because Brad was the intended receiver, I guess, and Anthony had been 
holding onto his arm or something. I don't know. And I don't know what happened exactly. I, uh, he said um, that wasn't that was an illegal hold. You know, you were pass interference or whatever. I don't know exactly what he was saying. Well, Anthony said, well, then take the penalty. Of course, that's one parking space. Um, um, take the penalty. Brad said, no, I don't want the penalty. I'm just telling you, you know, next time don't, don't do that. No, take the penalty. No, I don't want the penalty. I'm just telling you, you know, we're do, do, let's play better, you know. Take the penalty. And no, I don't want the penalty. And this Mike, this student had just come back from Loveland Academy, He's looking at this, and he's, he, he, I, heard, I was standing next to him. He said, I cannot believe. What is wrong with you guys? You, what, you used to be fighting over getting the penalty. Now you're fighting over giving the other person the penalty. And I thought, hmm, something's changing. You know, these kids are, are realizing there's something more important to than the game that they're playing how they're playing the game and their spirit and attitude. And I'll never forget one day two kids were horse playing in the church and, and um, they, um, uh, one of them, one of the freshmen, his name was Israel, and he was, he was a little antagonist. He, well, he might dispute this, but in my view he was. And he would, he would sort of incite, he would, he would pick on the bigger boys until they'd chase him, and then he'd cry for help, you know. And um, so... So they're chasing. They actually came through the classroom where I was at the time and um, came in, in one classroom out the back door. And the back door had a drop down. It was a metal door. And Israel's running from this older kid. And, and when, he, when he steps down the back door, back that, through that door, the outside door, he slammed the metal door behind him. And his foot came up and caught the bottom edge of that metal door. It was just sharp metal. And it, through his sock, just sliced the bottom of his ankle there. And uh, I mean, blood was gushing, and they called me out there, and he was sitting on the curb, and um, he already had his shoe off, and his sock was bloody. It really wasn't that bad. It was—I don't think we needed stitches, um, but it was—you know—it was—it was—it was, it looked ugly. And um, I'll never forget—he looked up with this smile on his face, and he said, Mis uh, "Mr. Clark, I didn't even cuss." <laughs> and he felt that he had gained a victory and um, those were some of the first indications to me that their religion was no longer being compartmentalized on the Sabbath morning they wanted something that would go throughout the week as well and they were looking for that. They were, they were wanting that. And um, those little signs are very encouraging when you're a teacher, when you're a parent, when you see that those, those kids are, are growing. So God here tells Moses, and Moses tells the children of Israel, make religion a part of everything you do. When something goes well during your day, praise God. When you have a problem during the day, pray for a solution. Let your kids see that religion governs your spirit and attitude, your words and your actions throughout the week. That you're, you're not like everyone else because you're a Christian. Jesus Christ lives in you by faith. Our, our, our Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery of godliness. Oh, the world is dying wanting to see a revelation of Christ in humanity. Let it start at home. 
Let your family know that you take your religion into every aspect of your life, into the way you, the way you um, do your business, the way you um, go about your activities. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, um, Jesus, uh, Joshua says, um, Choose you who, this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here he is, the father of the household, right? And he's saying, we're making a decision that we're going to serve the Lord. Uh, and one final verse on this, um, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Um, I really believe that, that God wants us to do the works of Father Abraham in these last days. And Abraham had a habit of building altars. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. How does that happen? I don't know exactly. Every family is different. Every father is different. We shouldn't be trying to prescribe. You have to read this book and you have to do meet at this time in the morning. You have to you have to sing this song or this is the way you do it. But I can tell you no matter who you are, no matter what your family is, no matter what your background is, it's going to have to be intentional. It's going to have to be you saying, "Lord, how are we going to do this in our family, in our situation, with our schedules? Um, we're going to have to make this a priority. It's going to have to take priority over some of the entertainment that we might naturally just follow along with. It's going to have to take a priority over some of the, of the social life that we might otherwise have. Um, it might have to take priority even over some of our business pursuits or our economic uh, pursuits. Um, it should be more important, right? I know for a fact that my parents could have done better financially if they had stayed in California. But that wasn't their focus. And I'm glad it wasn't their focus. I'm glad that they were willing to say, you know what, our family's spiritual life is paramount and we're going to do our very best to put, a, put an environment intentionally where we can raise them together. So we have worship that is a personal worship. We spend time with God, but also that family worship that we've been talking about the last few minutes. Exodus 28, um, morning and evening sacrifice, Deuteronomy 6, train your children all day long. Um, instruct them in the fear, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We also have corporate worship. <coughs> which you and I have the opportunity to be a part of. And, you know, there's some people who say to me, why do I really need to go to church anyway? Um, have you ever met people like that, particularly millennials and, and uh, even some of our generation? They feel like, you know, I, I can have a relationship with God. I don't need to go to church where there's hypocrites and there's problems and there's politics and there's all those things that aren't godly. And um, I just as soon worship, you know, I'll go hiking in nature and I'll go to the beach on Sabbath and I'll, um, I'll watch, maybe I'll watch, you know, Hope Channel 3 be in. You know, I like Doug Batchelor's preaching better than pastors, by the way. It's hard to be a pastor these days, you know, um, because I remember I was pastoring one church and this dear, dear member came up to me. She was so sincere. She said, you know, you know, pastor, I love your sermons and all, but but, you know, when you preach, it's just not quite the same as Mark Finley. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, <laughs> Probably true. Um, uh, I don't know that I should feel 
flattered that she thought of that I should be like Mark Finley or what, but um, um, you hear that, you know, I just, you know, people have the choice, you know, of staying home and listening to Dwight preach on Sabbath morning. And there are many people who do that. They just say, there are, there are thousands of former Adventists or Adventists whose membership is still on the books who they never darken the door of an Adventist church, but they're every week, you know, listening to sermon on Sabbath morning. I know, because in my community, I can list, um, I've, I've gone and visited them, you know, and they've confessed. That's what they do. Um, they rarely come to church. Um, they still consider themselves Adventists. Um, why do I have a problem with that? It's not because I'm worried about the offering that's given in the offering plate, although I think they would be blessed to be a part of the worldwide ministry of the church. Maybe they're giving through some other ministries or whatever. Um, it's not that. The reason, I think, is because we need, we need fellowship. We need community. And this could be a whole week's study in itself, I think. We could probably spend a whole week just talking about community. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Because this is, a, this is a passage that's very, very relevant to this topic. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse um, 25, if you're taking notes. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Now, just, just before we read that verse, let me talk a little bit about this, the context of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 follows... I know I have a talent for pointing out the obvious. But he, Hebrews chapter 10 follows Hebrews chapter 9. And in Hebrews chapter 9... Paul is discussing the Day of Atonement, the annual sacrifice, the bulls and goats. Um, it's clearly the Day of Atonement. God, uh, the high priest goes into the most holy place. And by the way, we don't, we don't have time to unpack all of it, but in the sanctuary service, there was this final festival, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's viewed by the, uh, by the Hebrew people as the Day of Atonement, right? You're familiar with this? Now, 10 days before the Day of Atonement, they had what's called Rosh Hashanah, where they would, the priest would go with a long ram's horn trumpet and they would blow these shrill blasts that would remind the entire congregation of Israel one thing, Yom Kippur's coming. So they had 10 days reminder, Yom Kippur's coming, Yom Kippur's coming. Why this reminder? Why this focus? Um, if the first, if the whole rest of the sanctuary calendar year was the courtship, Yom Kippur was the wedding date. Okay, this was the this was the culmination. If you were to do a chiasm, for those of you who are familiar with that literary structure, a chiasm is where you know you have you have um, you know you in poetry how you have a you have different um, patterns, you know A B A B or, or or something like that. Well, uh, this is this is a literary uh, pattern where it's like this. You have the first chapter and the fifth chapter on the same subject. You have the second chapter and the fourth chapter on the same subject, or verse, or phrase, or whatever it was. The Hebrews were masters at chiasms. The third, then, would be, to the Hebrew mind, they would recognize immediately the third is the main point. That's the focal point. So there's like, it's ascending and descending, if you look at it in a triangle type of form. But that, that chiastic, the apex of the chiasm is the most important part. And, and we don't get it so much because we're not reading it in Hebrew, so it's harder for us to see it. Sometimes they used alliteration, sometimes they used the different poetry type. Much of the Old Testament is written in poetry, and they, they wrote with chiasms all throughout the Bible. Well, it's very fascinating. Study, if you study the books of Moses, remember how many books are there? 
There's five books of Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you put them in a chiasm, which is the central book? Leviticus, okay? If, if you take the book of Leviticus, what you find is you can see that they're broken up into different rules. And essentially, the first half of the book is talking about the different bloods and offerings and sacrifices. And we could understand that basically to be describing the, the symbols that related to justification. The last half of the book is talking about obedience and laws and different regulations and, and so forth. And we could understand those, I mean, these are general terms, but we could understand those to be talking about sanctification. But, there's a, but they correlate. This is the thing you have to understand. It's like, and I don't have it here in front of me to show you. I can show you a picture of a chiasm of Leviticus, but, but it, it, it correlates so that the, the first it starts talking about the priests, the last of the priests. Then it's talking about the people and the people. The, the um, you know, and so forth. There's this, there's this correlation that makes Leviticus into a chiasm. Well, guess what chapter is the apex of the chiasm? It all pivots on chapter 16, the chapter that talks about Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. This was the focus of the Hebrew mind. This was, it's sort of like, what's the point of, what's the point of dating someone if you're not going to marry them, right? I mean, Jane and I, we enjoyed our dating. Um, it was long-distance dating. Um, I was in Michigan, she was in Georgia, and um, we put a lot of miles on. I put a lot of miles on mostly. She had less flexible schedule. You know, seminary, I was, I was pastoring in Chicago. I was taking, I was taking an MA in church history during that time, and, and uh, classes are only from Tuesday to Thursday. So um, sometimes after church, Sabbath afternoon, I would start driving, and I would drive I'd get down to Georgia about 2 a.m. in the morning, Sunday morning. I'd sleep a little bit. We had a friend who allowed us, me to stay in their, in their home whenever, whenever I came, and I'd, um, they'd usually be asleep. I'd let myself in and, and sleep a few hours. We'd spend Sunday together. She'd go back to work. I'd drive back to Michigan. And, um, and um, we enjoyed dating. We had a lot of fun. We went hiking together. Um, we, we, we were getting to know each other and seeking God's will for our lives together. Um, but just because, you know, we were enjoying dating and I liked her and we were good friends didn't mean I'd say, hey, let's just date for the rest of our lives. Right? There came a point where I said, I think we should get married. And um, that's another story. She can tell that story. You can <laughs> ask her about that. Um, but the point is, the Day of Atonement is the wedding between Christ and His church. And it's even described as the marriage feast in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus describes that. Remember, there was the investigative judgment. The king went in to see who had the wedding garments on. It's a, it's a wedding feast. And um, this is the marriage. We're living in that time when God is particularly cleansing the sanctuary. Without going into the study of this, there are three things cleansed in the sanctuary. In the, in the Old Testament, there's the congregation was cleansed of sin. The temple was cleansed of sin. The priests were cleansed of sin. So Paul's explaining this, right? And in, in our day, in the real day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the antitypical day of atonement, I believe we're living in now, the church is being cleansed. By the time Jesus comes again, it's a pure church, right? The sanctuary in heaven's being cleansed, meaning the names of false professors are blotted out during the day of atonement. The sins of those who have stayed with Jesus are blotted out. So in the end of the cleansing of the sanctuary, there's a book of those who are saved, and it's really those who are saved. 
and the names of those who are alive matches exactly the church on earth because the church has been cleansed too during the shaking and the and the the ingathering that goes on in the last days when the when the book when the day of atonement ends the church is cleansed the sanctuary is cleansed and our hearts are cleansed so it's a special time without going into the whole study of it, it's a special time and and Paul refers to this notice the last verse of chapter 9 Hebrews 9, verse 27, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, but unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time. Notice what does He say? What's the next phrase? Without sin unto salvation. So Christ on the cross, He was our sin bearer, right? Christ as our priest is our sin bearer. The priests actually ate of the sacrifice that the sinner confessed unto. And what did that symbolize? It symbolized that the, sin, the priests became a sin bearer as well. They bore the sins until the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, read it there in Leviticus 16, there is atonement made for the priests, for the congregation, and for the sanctuary. And sin was to be taken out of the camp. All that sin was to be taken out on the scapegoat by the hand of a fit man led into the wilderness. And sin was no longer to be a part of God's people. So we're living in this time of earth's history. Notice now, this was all so we could understand verse 25. I get a little carried away sometimes. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, this is what it says. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Now, when Paul says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, it was clear that some people said, well, we don't really need to get together for church. <laughs> we don't really need to spend time fellowshipping with each other. We have Jesus, don't we? And you notice he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, and it's going to get even more important as you see what happening. The day approaching. Now, usually as Adventists, particularly if you're reading this in the King James Version or many translations, it's just, it just says the day approaching. And we might think, well, that's especially talking about the second coming. And so we should be really getting ready for the second coming, which means we shouldn't forsake this something ourselves together. But some of your translations, do you notice anything different about the day? It's capitalized. Why is it capitalized? Because Paul has been talking about the day, and the day in Hebrew thought is Yom Kippur. Clearly, I mean, Bible scholars agree. It's not just Adventists. This is, this is Bible translators, modern translators. They agree that the day talking about here is the day of atonement. We're living in the day of atonement. Now, if we're supposed to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the day of atonement is approaching, what do you think we should be doing when it's here? Right? I mean... Rosh Hashanah, those 10 days of, of warning, those are past. I mean, now is the time for us to be saying, hey, and you know, I, I think so much, so many times we just forget. We forget as Adventists that we're living in a time when God is trying to do something special with His people, with His church. We're He's living in a time when He wants to cleanse us. It requires our cooperation. Why does that matter? Well, you know, it's not just coincidence that God gave us the health message. Because clear minds help, to, help us to be able to hear God's voice and to be able to have that experience where we understand what it is that God wants to change in our lives so that we can be cleansed and prepared for the second coming. I mean, you can't separate the importance of the health message. It's not just so you can have a hundred-year-old Adventists who are still taking their retirement from the denomination and making the denomination go broke. Um, 
you know, the point of living so long or the health message is not just to live long. The point of the health message is so that we can have clear minds because we're living the last days. And not just the last days, we're living in the day. And this is a time when God is trying to separate us from... Why does God have us... Why does God give us reforms in our lifestyle? Why does God ask us, especially during this time of earth's history, to not focus on the externals? Why does God ask us to reform the way we entertain ourselves, not to live the way that... It's all because of the day. And it's not because God sort of, le- oh, we're, we're the unlucky ones that got born in the day, you know. Uh, <laughs> if I was living back then, I could have my alcohol and wouldn't have to worry about it. And, um, it's that God wants to consummate his marriage with his people, and he needs to know us intimately. He needs us to know him intimately. He needs to have this relationship. That it, that's what God wants. Oh, let's not see it as a list of do's and don'ts. It's it's God desperately wanting to get through to our sin-darkened minds and hearts and needing to get some distractions out of the way for it to happen. That's what it's all about. So yes, we're called to live differently, but it's not for for, for just so that we can be different. It's so that we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, um, and we could spend a whole week just talking about the importance of the cleansing and the, 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 what's happening in the heavenly sanctuary now. But um, here we're talking about the importance of worshiping together. So what happens when we worship together? It's not just of us coming together and saying, oh, uh, you know. <laughs> it's not just a matter of us coming together and saying, we... You know, we sing the same psalms, we hear the same sermon. I think it goes beyond that. I really think that God wants to have us experience community together as fellow believers. Now, why? I think community does a number of things. When we're born, we're born into a family, as I mentioned. When we're born again, we're born into a family. That's our church. And um, when we grow up, you, you know, you, you know, you ever talk about brotherly love, you know, or fighting and like, like brothers and sisters? You know how we have that, we have that um, ability to get on each other's nerves when we live together under the same roof? Um, but there's still a love that binds us together, right? They say blood is thicker than water and all those things. In the church, there's meant to be a sense of community as well. We are brothers and sisters. We don't always get along. But the way we don't always... the the fact that we don't always get along is not a problem, really. It, how we deal with it is the problem, okay? The fact that we're different and we rub each other wrong and sometimes we say things and, and from your background it means something that I didn't mean when I said it and we get offended. And we Listen, the only way for us to, um, one of the most effective ways, I should say, for our characters to be refined is for us to be living the god the life God has called us to alongside other imperfect people. I think you understand what I'm trying to say, right? The family is not just there so we have a good worship service and there's enough people to have the kids' programs on Sabbath school, on Sabbath morning. The family is there so that we have a community of people that, that we interact with. Iron sharpens iron. And by the way, that community also provides a degree of accountability. 
we help each other. We hold each other accountable. We should welcome it. You know, I, I've spent some time in Amish country. Jane and I, a couple years ago, coming back from a camping trip in Michigan, we stayed over for a day or two in, in, in Ohio, in Amish country in Ohio. And one thing that I had never realized before, I knew they eschewed technology and they didn't use telephones and electricity and all those things. I had never reali realized what, the, what the, real un the real basis of that was. The real, the real reason the Amish have chosen to live the life they live is because they think that technology destroys community. That's it. So they say, we don't want a telephone in our house because it's so easy to pick up the phone and start talking to one of our church members and the subject of another church member come up. Now there's only two people on the phone. You don't have much accountability. Face to face, you have more accountability. And gossip is the number one destroyer of community. So they say, we don't want to tell. We don't. We want face-to-face -face time in groups where there's accountability. And we will hold each other accountable to only say kind, godly, appropriate things about each other. That's the ideal, at least, that they have, they have, they have, they're searching for. Um, when they do, you know, you know some of them are allowed to have a telephone for their business? Did you realize that? And so they have it out on the street in a box, like it looks like a, te it's a telephone booth, like, you know, like London telephone booth, except it's not red and funny looking. It's just, a, it's got windows and glass in it. And that's so that everyone in the community knows when they go and talk on the telephone. <laughs> There's still accountability. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating concepts. Now, I'm, if they think there's no accountability, or if they, want, if they want FaceTime, not telephone. I heard someone saying the other day, well, I, don't, I, don't, I really don't like to text. I like to talk to someone. You know, it's just more, you understand where we're, we're going further and further away um, from this face-to-face -face communication, which is really, I mean, 90% of communication is nonverbal anyway, right? So it's much safer. It's much more accurate. It's more all the rest. They're saying, we want this face-to-face -face communication. That's the way we think we need to live in our community. I don't, I don't advocate for living the Amish lifestyle. Don't get me wrong. I do advocate for Seventh-day Adventists to come really to some terms with the need for community and accountability within the body of Christ. I think, we're, I think they have a principle, a biblical principle, that is completely missing from most Christian thought today. And... Um, you know, when you look at a megachurch, you have a worship experience, but do you have accountability? No. You come and you go. You can live any life during the week. No one would ever know the difference. You're just there on Sunday morning or sometimes on Saturday morning, and um, you're worshiping together. So the Bible here says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I believe, listen, don't, don't take me wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with um, on occasion, taking your family into nature on a Sabbath morning. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. It's the first book of God. It's God's revelation of His character through nature. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Spending the, the Sabbath and you know, doing things out of doors or doing things that aren't the normal church activities. I don't, I don't have a problem with that at all, but I think that we ought to not make a habit of worshiping on our own. We're not saved. We're saved individually, but we're saved individually in a family. 
And that's the church family that God would have us to be a part of. And so I think that this worship issue is also an end time issue, isn't it? Abraham built altars, he worshiped God. In the last days, we remember that the issue, the great issue which is dividing the world between those who worship the Creator and those who don't worship the Creator is the issue of worship. And um, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, Revelation chapter 13 and 8 tells us what um, the, the vast majority of the world will be doing. Uh, Revelation 13, verse 8 says, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him. Now, I wish the hymn there was capitalized. I wish it was talking about the Creator, but it's talking about the beast, right? All that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, or the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, just by the way this is worded, we can be pretty certain that the majority are going to be worshiping the beast, not the Lamb, right? And it, it, it's, it's all except... Generally, if it was the majority, you wouldn't say, um, the, you wouldn't put them as the exception, right? You would put the minority as the exception. And John here says, all that dwell on the earth shall worship the beast, except those whose names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And in chapter 13, it goes on, it tells how there's going to be coercion, and it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be required that we worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And, um, and eventually it says we wouldn't be able to buy or sell except we worship and receive the mark and so forth. Well, God doesn't let this type of coerced worship, false worship, go down without a fight, does He? In chapter 14, we see the response of heaven to what's going to happen in the last days, and that's the three angels' message. And he says in chapters 14 and verse 6, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Here's a direct quote from the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. And he, he quotes it and he says, The last days, the message, the warning against um, the, the, anti, the uh, antidote to the, to the beast's message, it says, worship the Creator. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Worship. Worship is the pivotal issue in the last days. I suppose if we're going to be faithful in those days, we've got to start now. Worshiping. Abraham, wherever he went, he built altars. Those altars remained as a testimony. The life that he lived, the family that he instructed, it left a legacy. I want to be the spiritual descendant of Abraham. How about you? Amen. The works of your father you will do. I want to pray today that God will make me. I struggle. I struggle sometimes, even in my own personal devotions. Sometimes, you know, it can be, it can be tough. I know. But I want to do better. I want, to, um, I want to have my personal time, my family time, my corporate time. I want to, to make the worship of God and my, my, my worship of God a part of every part of my life. That um, when Jesus comes again, I'm not going to be found worshiping the beast or his image. I'll, I'll hopefully be found worshiping the Creator. Amen. Is that your desire? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, I just want to pray that you would help us to walk in the footsteps of Father Abraham. I don't know what those altars looked like. They were probably all a little different depending on the materials available at the site. 
I don't know what these families' altars will look like either. They're probably all going to be different as well. But I just want to pray that each one of us might determine to do something intentional, to make our personal altar, our family altar, all that you want it to be. Help us to take our religion into every corner of our being. Help us to allow you to have permission to, to just get to know us so intimately that we can be a part of this great wedding celebration. Someday soon, Lord, we want to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We want to be at that table. The, the wedding is consummated. I pray that you'd be with us during this, this day, the day in which we're living, the day of atonement, that we would be cooperating with you worshiping with our fellow believers. Lord, it may, it may require me to change some habits. Someone else here may be realizing they need to change some habits. Lord, maybe, maybe we need to work harder at trying to begin our day in the evening instead of in the morning. Lord, whatever it is, I know that all of your biddings are enablings. All of your commands are promises. That whatever ask, you ask us to do, you give us the strength to do through your grace and by your blood. So I just pray today, I pray the blood of Jesus for each one gathered here. I pray that the strength of, of your Holy Spirit, the omnipotent hand of God, might be felt in their lives, that habits might be able to be changed, and, and, and Lord, even if it's just habits of speaking, sometimes it's awkward for us to speak about spiritual things to our family members. I don't know why, but sometimes it is. We can speak easily, more easily to somebody else, hypothetically. Maybe it's because they see how we live. I just pray, Father, that you would help us to change our habits that you might help us to have your words before us as we get up in the morning, as we go throughout our day, as we sit at our table, as we, and whatever we're doing, that your religion, our relationship with you, would so permeate our lives that our children know that we're Christians and they want what we have. Lord, I pray that you will bless us, not just during this camp meeting, but as we will be going home, I pray that each family, uh, you know, changes are always opportunities for new habits. Maybe this week away is a time for us to come back and say, hey, we're going to have a new schedule. We're going to do something different. And you're going to lead them into what works best for them. I just pray that you would bless them. And that when you come again, that we might be children of Father Abraham, doing the works of Abraham, worshiping you spirit, spiritually in our personal life and our family life and in our church life as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.